Welcome to the Divine Feminine Revolution Podcast, where women are magical and empowered. I'm your host, Dr. Megan Monday, psychologist turned transformational feminine business coach. This podcast is for you if you want to prioritize your own pleasure, face your fears, and manifest your desires. This podcast is sponsored by the Fearless Feminine Academy, where I teach women how to turn their trauma into their superpowers. My goal is to show women that we can heal our world by creating time and financial freedom by doing whatever the fuck we want. Are you ready for the divine feminine revolution? Let's get vulnerable and go deep. I'm so honored that you're here. Okay. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this edition of the Fearless Feminine Podcast. Specs of North Africa. (laughs) So amazing. Gosh, I didn't know that that was such a huge part of your identity. Like, that's so (laughs) impressive to me. What brought up that passion for you? Like, did you visit there once and you were hooked or like what happened? Yeah, kind of. I mean, when I was much younger, so I come from like a really like simple American working class family that wasn't very well traveled outside of the U.S. But my mom and I traveled a lot around the U.S. all my young life. So we were always kind of nomadic and we moved a lot, not just traveling, not like vacation, but like we kept moving and just for different reasons. Like she wasn't in the military. That's always what people ask me. Was your mom in the military? It wasn't that. It was just like, I don't know, just who we are, I guess, just jobs, family or things came up and we moved. So then I don't know when I was in high school, I started to have this feeling in me that I was going to live abroad. And I, I didn't know what that meant or where to go. And then many things happened through my adolescence. Like I had a best friend whose mom was German and uh, I, I would just like make these little connections or I would be fascinated by language and other languages. And I traveled a bit when I was like 18, 19 outside of the US and nothing stuck. I went to a few Eastern European countries and the UK, but I don't know, nothing really happened. And then when I was 21, uh, somebody in the US told me about Morocco and it's a really big, long story. So I won't tell the whole thing right now, but I became aware of Morocco and then I got like a wild hair to go there. And so, yeah, so I was 21. I went to Morocco with like a thousand bucks in my pocket and I ended up staying for a whole year, just like wild adventure, not working, just being like a hippie <laughs> and in a great way. And yeah, I got really hooked on it and I decided to study it when I was doing my bachelor's degree. and kept coming back. And then I ended up getting married here. Uh, and then I lived here many more times and taught English here. And I have my, my two children are from that Moroccan ex-husband and it just like snowballed. I mean, while I was living here, I also ended up living in Turkey, Qatar and the United Arab Emirates with my ex-husband, like moving around, coming back and forth. And we then also did some time in the United States and really my whole identity and my coaching and everything I care about is all about cultural inquiry and identity politics, really. (laughs) Gosh, I love that so much. And we're definitely going to go super in depth in there. I'm just wondering, like, 
you know, most people have, I'm surprised how many people like kind of had the wonderlust and that was like such a big part of their journey was to like go abroad. Did any like fears come up as you were traveling or like what gave you the courage to kind of like go for it? I don't know if I had any normal fears because I really did move a lot as a child. Like um, when I was five, we moved from where I was born. I was born in California. And then when I was seven, we moved, we moved to Texas. And when I was seven, we moved from Texas to Florida. When I was nine, we moved to Maine. And I always felt like an outsider, but also comfortable in the role of being an outsider. Like I changed schools so many times and I was just always the new kid. And definitely there were challenges with that. And I can kind of remember some of them, but I'm extroverted and I just, you know, I was moving from, I can't remember not moving. Like I don't, I was five years old when we left where I was born. So I don't remember that place really. Um, And then when I got the seed, I told you about inside my heart to move to abroad, I just became really focused on it. And I was reading a lot of books by writers who traveled and who lived abroad. And when I graduated from high school, I didn't go to university. I went back to the West Coast from Maine and traveled all around the West Coast, like San Francisco and North. And um, then my mother, while I was there, my mother met a Scottish man. So my mom was single all my life. And when I was over on the West Coast, my mom met a Scottish man and married him and moved to Scotland when I was only 19. So then my mom was gone. And then I started visiting her. Like, I wasn't afraid of that. It was just like more of who I already was. Yeah. That's so amazing. I really am curious about the outsider archetype because I think to be a revolutionary, which I know you're all about, so am I. Like you kind of have to be like a couple steps ahead and like be not be afraid to like speak out or like say things that, you know, rock the boat a bit. So like any tips on like embracing that? Yeah, I actually, I just made like a big ranting video about this in my own Facebook group this morning. Links. Yeah. Yes. It's called uh, free visionaries, cultural collaborative. So this morning I was giving a rant in this group about how the people who we like we are and who we attract the revolutionaries are already people who have felt like freaks or weirdos or outsiders in the past. Like, um, you know, not only was I always the new kid, but I was also not sporty. And especially when I moved to Maine, I was nine years old. So that was like the longest I lived in any one place from nine to 18 years old. And in that city where we lived there were where was where all of my extended family lived. And they were all baseball stars and football players and cheerleaders. And I was not that. And um, I was also super bookworm. I was also very chubby when I was a little kid and uh, all these things together, like my intellect, my, my decision to be a reader and not a sporty person, my body, my traveling, all these things put me on like the fringe. And when I was a kid, sometimes it felt like kind of painful. And like a lot of my clients too are people who are like fringy in some way. They, they, uh, they have body stuff, they have like uh, popular kid stuff, or they, their parents were from another country and they lived in the US, something that made them strange. And in, in the moment, it can feel like, um, 
like a cripple, like a crippling thing, like an outsider thing. But in reality, to me, it's like training to teach you that, like, get used to this and be good at it and be comfortable in this fringy spot. Because as you develop your revolutionary tendencies and when you get ready to spread your unique message, like you are going to be rejected sometimes and people are not going to get it and you're going to be ridiculed or pushed to the side. But who cares? Because you're already used to being there. You already filled the role of freak. So just embrace that shit and, and like sing your song and like be loud. So I mean, the, the tip that I have on embracing that is just like, you've already been there and you didn't die. And actually it's your superpower. So just accept it and tell yourself that every day. I love that so much because it is an initiation. And I know for me, I have like revolutionary tendencies. And then um, I also have like, a, I was raised in the South. I got a lot of that like good girl, like I was... Mm-hmm raised early Catholic. And then, um, I've got a lot of Libra in my chart. So uh, there's this, like, I want everyone to be peaceful, but then I've got this, like, but we're gonna like, you get the revolution has to happen so that we can all be peaceful and safe and get like yes. peaceful expression. Yes. You know? yes. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about like being inside so many cultures, like, did that like help undo any of the conditioning to like be good or to be quiet or not make a fuss? Like, what was it like to have all of that, you know, international experience? Yeah, yes. So, okay, I'm so glad you asked me that because I have like a really strong feeling about this and something to say. So people always ask me like what I learned from this or why I did it or what my, what I got out of all this. And I do want to say, before I answer that, I want to say another thing about how I did it. And maybe this is kind of bragging too. Um, But like when I first came to Morocco that first year, I intentionally chose not to meet or talk to any other English speakers. And it wasn't that hard back then because 20 years ago, there weren't as many English speakers here. And certainly this was before smartphones and so much internet going on. So like the local people weren't speaking as much English. And for people who don't know, Morocco is uh, on the Northwestern coast of Africa. It's, you can actually see Spain from the northernmost point of Morocco. So it's right across the Med and it's a former colony of France. So uh, the, the official languages of Morocco are Arabic, Tamazight, which is a indigenous language and French. And back when I first started coming here 20 years ago, the official languages were just Arabic and French. And most people spoke French as a second language. And there were a lot of French people living here, but Morocco is to French people almost what Florida is to the rest of the United States. Like it's like a retirement vacation spot. So, and that's not really great usually because it's not the same country. So it has been exploited. Um, It hasn't been a colony for, for a long time. It became independent in the 1950s, but there's still a lot of like economic colonialism and cultural and idealistic colonialism that goes on. So I wanna say that, just like set the scene. And then I traveled with another American girlfriend. We were here together but we both were like, we're only going to talk to Moroccan people. And um, I mean, I don't know what to think about that. That could be like snobby or whatever, however you want to see it. It doesn't matter. It's just how I experienced it. And I lived in like a very modest house that on purpose, I lived like 
pretty modest local people would live. And to be fair, I did come here with $1,000. So I didn't actually have a lot of money to spend. But this is not usual. Like most Western people who come to Morocco are like retired, older French people. And these days there's um, like young, funky people who have money and buy a jaunty old house and turn it into a boutique hotel. So like, it's easy to come here and live here and have money and live outside of like the real local people life and sort of hover above the local people life. And you can get away with living here without having any idea what local people are thinking, what the local culture is about. Um, Islam can seem really oppressive to Western mindset. So it's easy if you want to just sort of stay out of that and make your own little bubble. But I didn't do that. Like for whatever it's worth, for better or for worse, I really tried to put myself all the way in it. And then, yeah, my master's degree is about Islamic feminine consciousness. And I like really studied Islam and feminism. And I lived in the Emirates for the most of my master's degree too. So I just want everyone to know that like where I'm coming from, I'm not perfect. I am like a white Western person. So I'm sure I have some colonial mind tendencies that I'm not even aware of, but I have worked really hard to smash them and, and expose myself to other things. Like I said, I do speak the local dialect of Arabic and I've had three major relationships with three different Moroccan men and children with one of them. So I'm trying to like really understand and I've been in all kinds of families and all kinds of households. So that said, I wanna say that the biggest thing that I have taken away from living in all these countries and, and what I wanna say about all this is that I learned that all the things that oppress us or hold us back about culture, patriarchal things, ideas about what our limitations are, what we can do for work, how we can make money, what's possible for us as women, what, what it means to be spiritual or believe in God, all of these things are human inventions. Like human beings make meaning. That's what we do. Um, and our human beingness is, is limited, but our, it's our spiritual being that's not limited. So our work or our task while we're on in our human bodies is that we are negotiating between our spiritual being and our human being. And our human being wants to make meaning. And meaning is made or it's used to make us all feel comfortable and stable. But we are not born fully conscious and making our own meaning for ourselves all the time. We're born into a collective consciousness and we subconsciously absorb the meaning of the people who raise us and guide us. So unfortunately, we've all been raised and guided by a patriarchal world right now. So we're all struggling against this really oppressive, limited sense of meaning in the world and what's possible. So what I learned by traveling and studying and learning languages and absorbing and immersing myself in other cultures is that those of us who have the privilege and the ability must consciously choose to make new meaning that creates more freedom for other people and make new cultures because we can do it. It's made up. It's not real. It's not like a deep universal truth that women have to be in these roles and men have to be in these roles and this language is better than this one or it, none of it's real. It's what we want it to be and we can make it up. Does that make sense?
Yes. I love your sincerity and your passion and authenticity. Like I feel it so deeply and I totally get behind everything you said. And there's something like you put a little twist on it that made me like, I don't know, like breakthrough, you know, like, yeah, it is all made up. That's so, you know, we can make up something better. And I think it's a really exciting time to be alive because I do feel like you know, the, the oppressive systems are crumbling and it is making way for like newer, healthier, you know, innovative revolutionary systems. I gotta say, I'm like super interested in Islamic feminism. Like tell us, I'm sure, you know, with grad school, you can talk about that forever, but like, give us a a quick version of that. And like, like, what are the misconceptions about Islam, you know, based on your experience of like being more immersed in it? Yeah. Well, I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to say that there are a lot of born mainstream Muslims who are like creating this wild feminism. There still is like a mainstream, but it's like the U.S. It's the same. It's like, you know, the people who are oppressed or who, I mean, people who believe that Donald Trump is working for the greater good, like the people who think that like, the people who fight against the Black Lives Matter uh, ideal, like these people are in the same mental trap that most mainstream Muslims are in too. Like there is a mainstream message. So it's not like I'm over here and there's like this big feminist movement that nobody knows about. Yeah, a lot of that stuff is fear-based though, don't you think? It's just like um, competition, struggle, like I don't have enough, so I'm not gonna let anybody else get there. Yes. But so, yes, so there, but the thing about Islamic feminism that is real that people don't know about is that there are a lot of Islamic scholars, women who are women, and some of them are American converts, but also some of them are uh, born Muslims in their native countries. I can tell you just randomly, there's a woman called Leila Ahmed, and she's uh, an Egyptian woman. And I don't know if it's true now, but Less than 10 years ago, she was the dean of the divinity school at Harvard. So like, you know, <laughs> like she's consequential in the world. Yeah. And she is an Islamic feminist writer. Uh, there's a Moroccan woman who recently died in the last few years named Fatima Mernisi. And she was a university professor at a university in Rabat, which is the capital of Morocco. These are just two examples of women who write different interpretations of the teaching. So in Islam, there's something called hadith. And hadith are not um, scriptures from the holy book, the Quran, but they are like traditional stories of the prophet that have been passed on. And in Islam, it's a good idea to follow them. It's just like advice for life. It's like, oh, the prophet Muhammad did this, so we should try to do it. And obviously those hadith were not written down while the prophet was alive, just like every other religious thing ever. They never write it all down while the actual stuff is happening. Like the people write it down later. And the people who wrote it down are usually people who are connected to the patriarchy and want to keep their power. So these things were interpreted in a certain way. And now some of these Islamic feminist writers are interpreting them in different ways. And there are books, not new books, books that are 20 years old that are very clearly writing about how the religion of Islam has been interpreted in a very masculine, patriarchal way, and it's not true. There are very powerful, very educated women and men, 
suggesting that this idea of the head covering is actually not really what it says in the Quran. So lots of women have to cover their heads. And I know the Western view of Islamic women is that Islamic women are covered. And the, the reality is that there is a whole school of thought that that's not actually required. So that is a patriarchal thing, just like it's a patriarchal thing about how uh, in our countries, if your skirt is too short, then maybe you asked to be sexually harassed. I mean, that's nobody, that's not real. Just like it's probably not real that women have to cover their heads to show how pious and spiritual they are. I know. Uh, rape prevention is like, a, I wrote my dissertation on it and did a lot of work as a victim advocate. And I remember one supervisor telling me that, you know, you should be able to walk down like naked down, you know, the university strip during a football game and have nothing happen to you. Yes. And I think that that is like really eye opening because a big part of my dissertation was on the great myth. And it was scary to see how many people like just willingly like check the box that they endorse these beliefs. And it's really the opposite of empathy. And it's all that like con cultural conditioning that we get around. Um, these are okay. Like you said, like these just made up constructs that are serving the purpose to like oppress and control and, you know, privilege certain members, usually like, you know, the white men. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. And here, I mean, sometimes I feel that, I mean, there is, there's so many layers and nuances about like, who's a minority or who is a person who's uh, underprivileged or whatever. But in this part of the world, obviously it's not as easy as calling people white or not white because people here actually technically, you know, on those forms that we fill out where, uh, you know, are you Hispanic? Are you black? Are you Asian? Are you Arabs are considered Caucasian. Arabs are white. So, but in this part of the world, you know, a, a white American might not think that a brown North African person is Caucasian or white, but everybody, like they are. And like the whoever's in power here, it's just the men, just the men are in power. And then there's like a, a class thing. Mm -hmm. And also the indigenous people of Morocco are still like very much awake and identify themselves as themselves. And so there's like a thing between Arabs and indigenous people and who identifies as an Arab and who identifies as indigenous, which like, spoiler alert, like if you're from North Africa, like you have some mega indigenous blood, like there's no way around that. But some people think it's superior or like more Islamic to be Arab than indigenous. And like, there's so much going on there, but the Arab, people colonized North Africa before France did. That's how Islam got here. That's how Arabic became an official language of this country. And that's part of the patriarchal thing too. If you speak Arabic, if you identify as Arab, if you're a good Muslim, like this gives you power and importance. Mm -hmm. So what was it like marrying Arab men like I, I certainly don't want to be like stereotypical um I, I saw like one whatever that movie was I can't even think of the name where like the woman has to fight for her kid to get custody and stuff and I don't think there's like a lot of positive representation so like what what has been your experience being like a woman in that culture like has it been positive has it been a mixed bag like what has it been like yeah it is a mixed bag and it's interesting like if you and I had met each other like 10 years ago, I probably would be saying something really different, but I am divorced. <laughs> and, I, and yeah, I'll, I'll be really honest. And that is that, especially because 
like if I were telling you this story from the United Arab Emirates or like Kuwait or something, I would probably have another, a slightly different story because those countries are extremely wealthy. The, the people, who, the local people from those countries have a lot of power, a lot of freedom to travel, and they can solve a lot of their problems with money. But people from North Africa have a different experience. And so my ex-husband and many Moroccan men have this kind of like double identity where they were raised Muslim, they want to be like committed or they feel committed or they feel they identify with their uh, very mainstream patriarchal Islamic upbringing. But there are so many Westerners in Morocco and there are lots of intercultural relationships here. So there is also this kind of social pressure to be hip to the Western world. And when I met my ex, I'm sure he was definitely really excited to have this like super smart, funky, well-traveled American woman interested in him. And there is a lot going on here about like how Moroccan men marry Western women for the visa or the passport or whatever. And all everyone thinks they're different. And I probably thought I was different too. And I'll never know. I still don't really know. But my ex does have an American passport now. <laughs> and he's also very vindictive and mean to me post-divorce. So mm. it's curious. <laughs> you know what I mean? So um, what I found is that he was, it was hip and cool. And a lot of Moroccan men are hip and cool with their Western woman until their identity is threatened. And then they become like very committed to their mainstream patriarchal Islamic upbringing again. Wow. So that must've been like such an intense experience to go through. Like I've, you know, like my background as a psychologist and therapist, I think some of my hardest sessions are around like divorces and custody because it can just get like really ugly. And like, when you're talking about your kids, you know, like that's the most vulnerable, um, you know, intense experience, especially as a mom, you know, uh, and then you it is have the different countries involved, like, yeah, I can only imagine like what you went through with that. Um, yeah, <laughs> I, I, I do see that a lot where, um, you know, I think people can be progressive until it like hits this like trigger point <laughs> and then all of a sudden yes. they switched like who is this person you know like what happened so that's got to be you know a certain betrayal to to have that sort of have happened I appreciate you speaking on that yeah it takes a lot of vulnerability yeah actually I like to talk about it because I feel I feel like it's a taboo like I've only been divorced for two years and when we were getting divorced like when it first happened I was teaching English part-time at this language center in Marrakesh and um, the way that language center works is that the courses are for 10 weeks. So in a year, you can end up getting the same students back again because you don't always teach. It was just language classes for adults, right? So you teach like level one, level two, intermediate, advanced like this. And every semester or every 10 weeks, you could get assigned to different levels. So you might be my student in level one. And then five months later, I might see you again in level three. So, and I'm also like a storyteller and like, I'm really sort of like personal teacher and all this stuff. And so a lot of people knew that I had a husband and two kids and we'd been all over the world and then we were divorced. And I made a conscious decision to start talking about my ex-husband and not my husband when I was telling stories because in this country, divorce is still a bit of a taboo. And also in like, in our conversation now, like maybe I could have like tried to be polite or like, 
I don't want people to have a negative view of Morocco. I love it here. I live here. So maybe I wouldn't have said all the things I said, but also like, no, like I want to tell the truth. I want people to feel free to be who they are. I'll tell you, my relationship was extremely abusive, but because he never like hit me or caught, left any marks on my physical body, I didn't have the courage to say the word abusive. And I'm sure you recognize this as a psychologist. I couldn't accept that I was being abused until even after I was already divorced. And I would be like telling stories with my friends or reflecting. And I would be like, fuck, like that was abusive. Like he was totally like, dim like diminishing my value and making me doubt myself. And yeah, so I make a conscious decision to be really honest about that, even if it's not easy, because I don't want other people to question the value of like their intuitive understanding that they're not safe and they can change, they can move, they can move on. I think that's so huge. And I've worked with so many women who have overcome like narcissistic partners or like emotional abuse, you know, along with every other kind of like abuse and trauma. And um, I, I feel like, you know, we were talking about like travel or being like an outsider as an initiation. I feel like sometimes these like abuse trauma experiences are the initiation. And a lot of times it actually like wires our brain to be more intuitive because it's kind of a safety mechanism, that whole like walking on eggshells thing. But I'll yeah. say, um, I think, uh, I mean, it's hard to compare the different types of abuse. Like not one is more traumatic than the other. I mean, it really hits different people different ways, but I will say, I do see with like the emotional abuse or like the gaslighting, it really is such a mind fuck that like those scars just really last a long time. And I think one of my big things is like self-trust. And it's like, if you can't trust yourself, like what do you have? And I think that's yes. a big mechanism of the patriarchy in general. And then you see that sense yes. of like undercurrent when you, you know, I do think of like narcissism essentially is like the patriarchy, like on a personal level, because it's like all yes. about power over people and like really just like you said, diminishing is a great word for it. So can you give like some red flags around like what to look for? Um, because I think these people tend, if, if you're talking about narcissists, they tend to be very like charming. They do the love bombing, like, you know, like yeah. people love these people, <laughs> you know? Um, and then it's only like their intimate circle that really like sees like the true them. And a lot of times it is kind of like a Jekyll Hyde kind of moment. Um, but like any red flags you could share with people? I think for me, like in retrospect, the thing that I could have paid more attention to was that it seemed like I was always wrong. Mm -hmm. Like that's just not possible <laughs> between any two people, whatever kind of relationship they're having. If there are disagreements, it's just normal that like each person will make a mistake or even on the same issue, we could both be making mistakes at the same time. But it seemed like in retrospect to me, I was always having to apologize or I was always being told that like, oh, well, that's your problem or well, you did that wrong. Or I mean, like a big thing between me and my ex was money and he was always losing it or spending my money or like we were always out of money. And it was always because I made him make some decision that made him spend all my money. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? In retrospect, it's really funny, but in the moment I would be like, oh my God, like I did, I did put that pressure on him and I did make him think that. And so then he was forced into this situation where he had to spend all of my money. <laughs> like, so if you feel like you're always wrong and you're always apologizing, 
or you're always being told like, that's your problem. Oh, you have a chip on your shoulder. You, that's your problem. Oh, I didn't mean that. You just see it that way. Like that, that was what I was experiencing a lot. And I now have a new relationship and I'm very like vigilant, like where I feel, if I feel like that comes up, I'll be like, wait a minute. Like, I don't think I could make this up all by myself. I think we both like misunderstood each other and he's, he'll, he'll meet me there and be like, oh, you're right. I shouldn't have said it that way. And then I noticed like, whoa, that's so different. Like when I was married, that never would have happened. Like it was, I was always apologizing and always trying to change myself or adjust to the way I communicated because I was offending him all the time. Yeah. I think that's one thing to just like really make it simple. I always just sort of ask people like, is it always about that person? Like, do they yeah. all, you know, make it about them except when someone's wrong. And then it's like, you're kind of getting into this victim blame scenario where like, you know, it's always about them and their needs. But then when something goes wrong, then it's like your fault. <laughs> and I think yeah. you see that like in the oppressive systems, like as you were talking, like, you know, thinking about like women getting so much like energy around, like having to apologize for everything or like people of color, you know, like, oh, this is your fault. Even though like the system of white supremacy is like created to, you know, keep people. Yes. And so, I mean, it's a very, very similar dynamic. I was having a session um, with one of my uh, clients who um, had been through some just really awful narcissistic abuse, like probably one of the worst experiences. And we were talking about this whole like power over thing and how it's systemic. It's like, you can see it on the individual level in abusive relationships, but it's happening on a much larger level. Yes. I think that stuff is normal, you know? So that's why I think it's so important to be like fearless and rebellious is that like this stuff is toxic culture and you know, it's, it's creating mental health stuff. It's creating, um, you know, tragedy, violence, abuse. Like, I mean, there's lots, I mean, I think in uh, epic scale, like war, <laughs> you know? Yes, um, yes. Yeah. So I think it's all the same, like system speeding all these different things, both on the like micro and the macro. Yes. And also this is why it's important. Like this is why our work and our choice to be life coaches to like individual women is so important because earlier you were asking me like what fears or hesitations I had to overcome to be like a world traveler. And I didn't have any, like, so to some other people, maybe I seem like really courageous and wild and like, I've got it all sorted out. And yet I still managed to manifest a relationship in my life where I like stuffed myself down into that system again. And I believe that that is because I'm still a product of that system. Just because my life experience made it easy for me to do something like travel widely, which seems really radical to some people, but for me, it wasn't, but I'm not immune to the rest of the patriarchal oppressive system. And I still allowed myself to go along with a relationship that was really wrong for me and really unhealthy. I was with him for 14 years. Like this is not like a small thing. And just even now, like right this minute sitting in front of you, I'm still like coaching my own self out of the mindset that allowed that to go on for so many years, you know? So if we want to create the revolution, if we want to overturn these large scale um, manifestations of the patriarchy, like war and the oppression of people of color and uh, the religious oppression of certain people, all this political stuff going on in the world, 
um, then we have to start within ourselves because before we clear that out of ourselves, we won't be real instruments of change in the bigger picture. That's so true. Um, I love how you put that. What is your vision of like, you know, I call it the divine feminine revolution. Um, but I mean, I think it's really more like the balancing of like healthy masculinity and healthy femininity in, in both of us in a way that can, you know, people can express themselves, they can have safety, they can like kind of do what they want. Like, you know, there's like a lack of uh, control and judgment, which I think is really what's kind of like bred into us. Um, and like, how does, how do you like kind of incorporate that in your coaching work or like in your group? Well, okay. So I think I'm answering you, but interrupt me if I, if I didn't understand. Yeah, whatever comes up is cool. I feel that we really can do whatever we want and be however we want, but it has to come from a place of love. Mm -hmm. So sometimes you know, it's possible to think like, oh, if everyone just does whatever they want, then like people will be murdering each other and stealing from each other and all that kind of thing. But those things only happen because people are missing something or they're being oppressed or repressed and they can't get what they need. Healthy, fulfilled people don't murder people and rob banks. Like the reason why those things happen is because we are living in a world full of systems of inequality and oppression. So my vision is that you have ultimate freedom within yourself. And like, I do wish we didn't have any country borders. And I do, I, I actually don't blame all those Moroccan men who are marrying women for passports, because this is the world that they were brought up in. This is what they were taught to do, like, find a way to survive, no matter who you have to screw over, like, just do it. And it's sick. And so my vision is that we can uh, awaken a consciousness. And I start with myself and I start with women like us so that we can demand better for the world and we start to heal each other. And slowly we will dissipate and sort of diffuse that need that the wounded human has to hurt others. And like, we won't need to hurt each other. We won't be hurting each other. Does that make sense? Yes. And I, I mean, you said it like so perfectly. And I think that's the people, you know, like that role of victim blame where people are like, oh, it's this person's fault that they, you know, are a criminal or that this thing happens. And it's like, no, like we need to like zoom out and look at the bigger picture that, you know, like, especially in the States, you know, like we're not created equally. And, you know, there's a certain level of like privilege or safety or just get off the hookedness <laughs> that you can get if you're in say like white or if you're a man or if you're in these like more privileged sort of experiences. And so I love what you say about love because I really do feel like that's the answer. And there's a really good movie about, um, it was the guy that did, he was like a famous director and um, he did like Ace Ventura and a couple of other things. And he had made like millions and millions of dollars. And then he ended up getting like a concussion thing where he was in a lot of pain. And he just like sort of had this like existential crisis where he realized that like the money wasn't making him happy. He like got rid of all of his stuff. And then he did this amazing documentary. It might be, maybe I'll Google it while you're talking here. Um, but anyway, basically he talks about how like um, evolutionary theory kind of got it wrong. Like we talk about like survival of the fittest and scarcity and all this sort of stuff. 
Um, and that really, there is so much more like cooperation and collaboration. And same thing, we're so focused on the brain as like sort of like the thing that rules all, but there's more and more research saying that the heart really is like, it, you know, works with the brain and is like the more powerful force. And so I think just these like subtle shifts around how we think of things, you know, like if we just like really value these things more, like this is just kind of a silly example, but you know, I've got a small daughter and so she like watches Nickelodeon and Nickelodeon has been like super, uh, I can remember when I watched it, you know, 30 years ago, like it was all white people, right? But like Nickelodeon okay. has super been broadcasting like Black Lives Matter um, commercials and elevating voices. Like I feel like they've done a pretty good job with they're, they're like programming our kids to be like more you know socially conscious like I, I'm like yeah finally you know like that's exciting to see especially like the Nickelodeon that I grew up with so I mean I think it's like if we just like rewrite some of these narratives it's so powerful because like we're creating reality like on this fear hey you know yes. myth when it doesn't have to be that well, okay. So you made me think of something because I'm also a, a yoga teacher and yeah. I've been practicing yoga for over 20 years also. And this is what you made me think of. Maybe the whole evolutionary theory thing was not so much a myth, but it's just outdated mm -hmm. because um, this idea of like survival of the fittest, it's like very root chakra based. Like the root chakra is all about like earthy, gross experience like bodies and blood and life and whether or not you can eat, whether or not you have shelter when the weather gets bad, like really 3D, like material survival. And so that makes sense for like the animal world and like the whole reptilian brain, like experience. But the heart chakra is higher up. And also this like column of chakras is a model of consciousness evolution right and like when like meditators and yogis who are trying to experience enlightenment they actually work on every chakra from the root chakra at the base of the spine all the way up their bodies until they get to the crown chakra which is supposed to connect you to like the ultimate universal knowledge and then you just sort of like disappear into the ether and you're like this universal being who doesn't need your body anymore so i think that like, yeah, it's time for us to evolve out of the survival of the fittest mentality. And it makes sense for us to be living in the heart right now. We are, we are capable. We are human beings. Like there's a difference between animals and humans. And there's a reason, like we have this ability to evolve our consciousness and communicate it and tell each other stories and make meaning. And then we can make our reality, whatever we want it to be. So Absolutely. I'm super interested in the chakras and I've done a lot of work around like Reiki and medical intuition and all that kind of thing. And I think it's such a great lens to look at things and, you know, fear is sort of like the emotion, like you said, that gets stuck in the root chakra. And I did look up, it is a, a documentary I was talking about is by Tom um, Shadiak and it's called I Am, which I kind of was thinking that's what it was called, but um, I verified it via the internet. Um, but if you haven't watched it, definitely watch that one because it is great. And it actually gives, you know, like I'm in the healing tradition. So like, if it feels right to me, like I can kind of accept that, but this one actually has like quite a bit of science behind it. So I always like to like refer people to those kind of things if they're more science minded. 
for me, it was like being in academia, like I'm like, okay, science isn't all it's cracked up to be. Like I can't write very clearly being upfront in there. But for those of, you know, for people who like that thing, you know, there is lots of good science that's like really validating a lot of these healing things. And yeah, I think it's a great time for like, you know, we used to call them like light workers, but I really like the term light leader. Um, because we're like leading the way, you know, and I think it's so huge right now. And like, you know, one of the big aha moments for me when I was doing Reiki is there's an interdimensional symbol. So you can do distance healings. You can actually like, basically time is not linear in the sense that we think it is. And so kind of that concept of like, as you heal, like you're healing your past generations and you're healing forward, you know, future generations. And so I think it's just really exciting to see, like, as we expand the mind and like you said, get into that, like, you know, third eye or like crown chakra and like get really hooked into like <laughs> the, the multiverse or like whatever you want to call it, like yes. Yes. super consciousness, you know, like we really can transcend a lot of fears. And I mean, I think, you know, at least in my experience, you know, spirituality is like the way to get through like a lot of the traumatic um, elements. And so I think, you know, there's, it makes me think of, there was like a research study they did around meditation. And I think it was in DC, they got like the most amount of meditators to do um, meditation, like over the certain period of time. And it, it reduced the crime rate, like they could look at it and see a correlation there. Um, and then in some of the spiritual traditions that I've studied, they really talked about what you said, where um, there'll be a unification to the sense that there won't be borders and that there'll be kind of like a, you know, this could be like generations forward, but that part of that unification will make it so like wars are less likely, kind of like what you see with the EU, like, you know, once they sort of had like a common money, you know, and like identity, it like pulled people together versus that competition and struggle thing. And so it's interesting to see another cool thing that I thought was kind of interesting was I was at a spiritual workshop and they were talking about how all of the colonization and oppression has been like in the Northern hemisphere and the Southern hemisphere, like South America and Africa has a lot of times been sort of like the victims of colonization, but they're more the heart centered folk. And it's been like the, the Northern hemisphere that's had a lot of the imperialism and so, you know, they were just sort of saying like in the coming generations that the Southern hemisphere is going to be kind of like the more like civilized or like the more um, compassionate, like they're going to like help heal the world basically. So, I mean, I think that's like very intriguing to me and maybe you've experienced yes. that. Yes, I think that's highly likely. Actually, there's a woman named Helena Anderson. She's a friend of mine. She has her own group, but I can't remember the name of it, but she's in my group. So if anyone wants to find her, I just want to plug her right now because I'm in love with her. And she is an anthropologist and she studies matriarchies. And she's always telling me about how South America and Africa are going to be the leaders of the new world. And and she has many concrete examples of like ancient matriarchies who are showing us a better way, but then they've all kind of been covered up or taken over by the patriarchy, but she teaches about matriarchy basically. So if anyone's interested in learning that, I can help you meet her. I can find the name of her group and connect you with her. She's really cool. <laughs> Amazing. Well, tell us a little bit about like, what is it like to work with you? Like, I love seeing... Um, a lot of the women I've interviewed so far have like left corporate or like you and me have like an academic background and they're taking mm-hmm. these like 
kind of like breaking free from these patriarchal <laughs> environments uh-huh. and, like just taking their hard-earned knowledge and like you know going on their own so like tell me about what are the things that you work on with people like um what kind of results do you get like what do you love to do So my, like, I use the words truth and freedom a lot when I talk about what I do, because I help people recognize who they really are. And this kind of goes back with my whole thing of like recognizing that culture is created by humans. So we like assume that we are a certain thing based on the context that we were born into or what we've been told to believe is possible for us. But when we start to explore more deeply, we recognize that there is like a deep a deep truth of of selfness that might not be available if we keep adhering to the old assumptions. Um, An example, like a concrete example I can give about that is I told you already, I grew up not very physically active. And in fact, I was very overweight for all of my life. And as you know, because you are a human being in the world, like the world doesn't smile pretty on you if you're like a fat girl or a fat woman. So I had a lot of question about my value. And I feel emotional thinking about this because I really didn't know like who I was or what I could be because I was always being told that I didn't look right. And I was experiencing the world in a certain way. And then when I, the first year that I lived in Morocco, um, I got sick, I got intestinal parasites. And it was not fun. Um, I don't like recommend this, but I lost like a lot of weight, like too much weight. And I became like a completely different person. But I am grateful to this experience because I got to see, again, another example of how people were assuming things about me because of the way I looked, or I felt like I was a thing because of the way I looked. But then my body changed completely. And first of all, I still existed. I didn't disappear. I was still there. And second of all, people started to think other things about me and treat me in a different way. And it just made me want to tell all of them to go to hell because I wasn't really different or I wasn't a different person. And so then I started, that's when I started practicing yoga. And again, I realized like, oh my God, my body can do like athletic things, even though I've been told that it couldn't. And then my weight went up and down for all the rest of my life because, you know, I have two kids, I'm just like a human. And all through all of that, I was just like, oh, so this whole thing about bodies is total bullshit that's made up and it doesn't have anything to do with my truth. So when I'm working with people, I help them recognize things like that, not necessarily body stuff. It can be anything. It can be like the way their families treat them, the the kinds of jobs they think they can have. Oh, can you hear the call to prayer? Mm-hmm. Where is it? Is it loud? Yeah, I can hear it. Cool. That happens five times a day and there's two mosques on either side of my house. So anyway, <laughs> I have a lot of entrepreneurs who are attracted to me. You don't have to be an entrepreneur to work with me, but many entrepreneurs come or new entrepreneurs come and they think they can't make money with this crazy idea they have. And I help them realize that that's an assumption and that the truth is whatever you want the truth to be. I have a a former client who, um, I'm just going to be plugging everybody today. This woman's name is, 
Okay, this woman's name is Saskia and her group is called the Garden Revolution. And Saskia teaches people how to grow food because she is fighting a revolution against uh, pesticides, against government controlled agricultural practices, genetically modified food. She wants to put the power back in the people's hands. When I first met her, she was like, I can't make a living doing this. Like, this is not a real thing. And together we realized that it's a freaking real thing. <laughs> like, yeah. You know, so this is what I like to do with people. Destroy assumptions about what's possible. Understand what your own truth is. And through this practice, you create a freedom to be who you want to be. And when you are free to be who you want to be, you you will naturally inspire and create more of that for everyone around you. And I've said this before, and I'll say it again. If we want to help people who are being oppressed, I believe that one of the best things we can do is to free ourselves because it, I, I agree that it's not fair to blame like the starving child or the oppressed person of color for their misfortune. They are not, they didn't manifest that, mm -hmm. but it's the collective consciousness that manifested that. So if we are free enough, if we are privileged enough to play a role in changing that, then we have to, like, it's our job. So that's what I do. I help people recognize the truth, the difference between truth and assumption so that they can create more freedom, whether that's how they're making money, the lifestyle. Some people are fascinated by my lifestyle. They want to travel more. They want to be more nomadic. So I help them release the assumptions about what's possible or where they have to live or where you have to live if you have children. No, you don't have to have the perfect house in the same place for 18 years. If you have children, your children aren't going to die if you move around. Like, I'm about to start homeschooling my kids. I saw your post about homeschooling kids. Oh, I have so much to say about that. Anyway, well, I'm up a little space on that. Like, cause I think that that's really, you know, um, the, the gift of COVID, you know, and I've heard a lot of healers talk about it being like a heart chakra opening. We know like in Chinese medicine, the, the lungs, like respiratory stuff, yeah. it's heart chakra stuff. Right. And lungs yeah. and grief. Right. And so I feel like it's, yeah a huge cleanse. And I think it's helping us collapse a lot of the systems that are broken. So tell us yes. what you think about that. Yeah. So I also do think that this was a gift and I, I do recognize that like if people who are suffering or people who've lost family members, like yes. that is, it's not pretty and it's not a joke. And I don't think it's a gift in like a funny flippant way, yes. but I do believe that any, like all tragedies are going to bring perspective and that especially once again, if we are privileged enough to not be suffering from this or not be being hit too hard from this, then it is our duty to find where the perspective is and help the world move forward. So my children have not been enjoying school for a really long time. They are 10 years old and six years old and that they've actually wanted to get out of school for a long time. And I wasn't sure how to handle that. I didn't think I could handle it. Um, their father is not into it, to the idea of not going to school. But then as soon as all this happened and their school closed, I was kind of like, there's the gift. Like, it's not my choice anymore. Like they can't go to school. And here in Morocco, again, I had some unique experiences because their school tried to go online also, but the way they were doing it was by sending assignments on WhatsApp in these WhatsApp groups. 
And I speak the local dialect of Arabic, but I'm not a fluent reader and writer of Arabic. So like, I couldn't help them with like 50% of their homework. Like half of it's in French and half of it's in Arabic. And I couldn't, I can't handle any of the Arabic in terms of like reading and writing formal Arabic. Mm -hmm. So I, at first I panicked. I thought I was being a bad mom and like I should do something about this. And then I was like, wait a minute. Like, these are all the signs to like empower you to take this into your own hands. And so um, I released the, I, I left the WhatsApp groups last spring. I released that sense of responsibility that I had to follow that homeschool model, that distance learning model. And now the school year is gonna start again in like two weeks and I'm not, I'm just not sending them back to school. I'm just not going to. And I decided to start exploring more of what it means to unschool your children. I actually have a really amazing, powerful client who is a teacher and she and I talk a lot about unschooling. And um, I think it, I think a lot of families are gonna be homeschooling their kids now, or at least thinking about it, wondering about it, being forced into it. And this is gonna require all of us to think really hard about what education is and what the education models we've been given in the traditional sense are doing for our children. And it might not be comfortable. It might be really hard. It might be frustrating, but the result after a year from now, people are gonna see that it wasn't the end of the world for that traditional education model to crash. And naturally new ideas and new models are gonna be born from this. It's just gonna happen. I think it's really powerful too, because like I've always attracted a lot of like healers or highly sensitive people like, you know, we're a little more prone to like anxiety and depression. So that was easy to do in my psychology practice. Um, but I really feel like all of these kids, I mean, really, you know, if you follow like the whole like indigo kids thing, probably you and I are one yes. of those. And then these like younger generations, you know, the crystals or the rainbows or whatever you want to call them, yes. like yes. they're even more. And so like, yeah, like the, I do think like the traditional school system is not designed for those learners. I think it is a, a, a part of the patriarchy and I think yes, it's yes. like make them sick in the sense of like, you know, it's all about like conformity and pressure and, you know, going against their natural like wildness. So I do like that thing. I got to say for me, I'm considered, I'm like, how am I going to balance everything? I mean, that, that's the part that freaks me out as a mompreneur. <laughs> um, yes, yes, yes. But like you said, you know, you figure things out and there's even in things that are disruptive, you know, it can be stressful, but like, obviously there's a gift in there. And I do feel like it's interesting to see such a wide scale moment where all of these kids get like, you know, a pass on going to school. And I feel like that's definitely yes. part of the plan. <laughs> yes, yes. And I'm excited to see what happens. Like, I'm not, I know it's going to be hard. I respect that. It's not easy for me. I'm also a single mom, like doing my business right now. My child just came and knocked the phone over while I'm talking to you. Like, yeah, it's not awesome, but, but also like, maybe we'll stop being so uptight, you know, yeah. like five years ago, it would have been like horrifying to have the phone knocked over if you were having a video conference for your work. But now it's like, <laughs> that's just part of what happens like I I do I feel that the patriarchal system like made everybody so uptight rigid like, yeah mm -hmm. yeah rigid and maybe it's time that we all just relax and like go with the flow and learn what that even means to go with the 
flow and, and not have to wake up early. That's the part I can get behind a hundred percent. That was a yeah. shock for me. Like having been an entrepreneur, you know, I was like, sweet, I'm out of the system. I don't have to wake up early. I go with my own rhythms and make my own time, you know? And then when like kindergarten started, I was like, Oh no, 6 a.m. wake up call. Like that is not me at all. Um, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. Another system of oppression to make us all wake up early and go against our natural rhythms. Um, so yeah, a lot being revealed during this time for sure. Well, tell us like your contact info. How do we get a hold of you? Um, I'm so like, you know, I feel like it's very parallel and aligned with the work that you're doing. And I love hearing the backstory behind it all. So how can we work with you? Where do we find you? Well, my personal Facebook page is wide open, so you can all just like come and join me on Facebook and I'll, I make friends with everybody pretty much. And then my group is called Free Visionaries Culture Collaborative, and I welcome you to join the group and you can just message me and talk to me anywhere on Facebook is really the best place. And actually I am uh, running one-to-one coaching and I have some spaces in my private coaching right now. Um, and I do a lot of like, fun interaction in my group. So I would like you to meet me there and talk to me if you're interested in working together. That's just simple. I'm right here. <laughs> yeah, doing the revolution because like we all have a part to play. And even if you don't think yes. you're very revolutionary, there's just like a couple layers we can strip off and then totally <laughs> just being yourself is the revolution. Like just loving yourself is the revolution yes. Seriously. oh my god so profound that's like I, I think that's a perfect note to end on thank you so much for um I love you. talking with you I'm gonna message you for sure uh you're so Me too awesome. I love you too <laughs> yeah um so, so glad to finally meet we've been like hanging out in each other's groups but it's nice to like be kind of face to face in a certain way totally. across even though we're across the world. Um, <laughs> but thank you so much for your time. Um, go ahead. We'll, I'll connect you up with, uh, you know, the show notes and the, the links and all that sort of stuff. Um, thank you so much for your time. I love getting to know you and uh, love your perspective. Thank you, Megan. Thank you so much. Okay. Talk to you soon. Bye. Okay. Thanks for listening to the Divine Feminine Revolution podcast. Make sure to subscribe and leave a five-star review. Want to keep the conversation flowing? Find us on Facebook at the Divine Feminine Revolution Facebook group, where revolutionary women gather to listen to their hearts, monetize their gifts, and change the world.